If you're new here and or here for the first time, let me tell you a little bit uh, what we've been doing this fall in our sermon series. We've been looking at the book of Exodus at a very high level, and we are trying to look at the text through the lens of this question, who is the Lord? We want to know who God is through the story of the Exodus. And last week, we looked at the first nine of the ten plagues, and today we're going to look at the final one. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it under the until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorsteps, the Lord will pass over the door, and you will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the cattle who is in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not buried. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. And go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Um, 
Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, now you would send your spirit here so the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf would be unstopped, that we would be able to see you and encounter you in a profound way through this passage. Give us uh, a willingness to uh, be challenged. Give us the ability to be comforted also by your love and your compassion, Lord. And we ask all of these things in your son's name. Amen. You know, last week as we looked at the first nine plagues, we saw that that section began with the question that our sermon series has been centered on from Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, where Pharaoh asks, who is this Lord that I should obey him? He's like, I don't know your God. This is what he says to Moses when he says, will you let us go? Because that is what God wants. And essentially, Pharaoh is asking the question, what is so special about your God, about your faith that I should embrace it? And there's probably no better answer to that question about what makes God the God of the scriptures, so unique that we should give ourselves to him than this passage. You know, because last week in the first nine plagues, we saw that, first of all, that God alone asserts that he alone is the king. It's not the Pharaoh. Yahweh is the true king. There are no other gods before him, not the Egyptian gods, not the Nile god, not the sun god, Ra, they were all shown to be powerless against Yahweh. And then we also saw that Yahweh, the Lord God alone, is wise. That he is the source of life. If you follow him, worship and obey him, it leads to flourishing. But you go against him. Life begins to come undone. And that's part of what the chaos of the plagues began to show us. Misery is spread upon the people of Egypt because they will not acknowledge the Lord. And lastly, we saw that the Lord alone was a merciful judge because each of the plagues were opportunities for repentance, to be able to say, God, I recognize you, for Pharaoh to release the Israelites. God is patient. But we saw at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh refuses and warns Moses, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you shall die. And those were Pharaoh's words after all that he had experienced. His heart was hardened, he was unyielding. So God says, I'm going to send one more plague, the tenth and the final plague. And by the way, the word plague literally in Hebrew means a strike or a blow. It's going to be the final blow, the death of Egypt's firstborn. Because after that, there would need to be no other plagues because here God answers Pharaoh's question. Who is this Lord? He answers it definitively. You know, it's the mic drop moment. Moses exits the stage and Pharaoh will experience the answer to this question. And I want to acknowledge up front, this is a difficult thing to contemplate for all of us. The thought that every family in Egypt will experience death, lose a loved one, 
I mean, some of you are thinking, I mean, this is brutal and harsh. Oh, my goodness. Why not just punish Pharaoh? Why the whole nation, even down to the girl behind the handmill? Did you catch that phrase in the reading? Meaning she is the poorest in the country will also experience this. And maybe some of you are asking, why would I want to worship a God who does such a thing? If that's where you are and you're like, I'm ready to walk out, please bear with me, okay? I will get to your moral objections. They are important because I think many of us feel this in this room. Um, But before you dismiss it as all too horrible, or you may be so familiar with this story, you just want to skip ahead and you want to talk about Jesus and the Lord's Supper, or maybe some of you are looking for a personal application and some sort of takeaway, Before we get to all of those things, we need to take some time to understand what is happening in the text. Because this is the foundational salvific story of the Old Testament. You know, and observing the Passover meal is a central practice of Judaism. And for Christians, a revised Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, is the central act of Christian worship in many ways. So if we, we want to ask the uh, question, what makes the Lord so unique, worthy of our worship? Here it is, you know. And so let's look at this 10th plague. Um, why does this plague get so much attention? Because the other nine plagues, some of them got a couple of verses. Some of them got uh, maybe a little longer. But here we get chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter a part of chapter 13 are about this last plague and the Passover. Just there's this volume of information on it. And it's because this death of the firstborn here obviously shows us something about God. It teaches us about his power. About his power. You know, Moses says in Exodus 13, 3, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Because he is a mighty God. He's a mighty God. I mean, the death of the firstborn was another reversal of creation. You know, on the sixth day of the world, God breathed life into man that he created in his image. And in this tenth plague, he brings death to the living. This was not simply about someone getting disease or getting sick. It's not a natural occurrence here. Rather, it was caused by divine intervention here. Notice in chapter 11, verse 1, verse 4, what does it say? God says, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt this terrible thing. At midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God himself is going to go out to bring judgment upon the Egyptians. And as the psalmist wrote, he it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. Psalm 136, we just read it in our call to worship this morning. Because it reveals God's power over creation. He is a mighty God. So when Pharaoh is asking, who, who is this Yahweh? I don't know him. God is saying, I'm the mighty God. Not only that, another attribute of God that will come into focus 
in the coming chapters is that God himself is a jealous God. That is, he refuses to share his glory with anyone or any other God, including with the Egyptian gods. I mean, think about the God of death in Egypt, Osiris. You know, that is a major deity in the Egyptian, you know, pantheon of gods. The ancient Egyptians were obsessed with death and the afterlife. And if you ever have spent any time in Egypt or studied Egyptian culture, you see the magnificent sights. You understand the elaborate arrangements they made for the afterlife. In fact, ancient Egyptians invested a larger portion of their wealth in the afterlife than any other culture in the history of the world. The Great Pyramids of Giza, the tombs in the Valley of the Kings, they stand as testimonies to their preoccupation with death and dying. And so let's go back to this god, Osiris, for a second. You know what that word actually means in Egyptian? It means the mighty one. The one with sovereign power, okay? So you have Osiris who claims this, and the Lord God who says, uh-uh. And Osiris has an assistant, Anubis, the god of the underworld, who guided the dead during their passage to the afterlife. They were powerful deities. And in this final plague, the Lord God declares, Osiris and Anubis have no ability to prevent death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. Even the firstborn of Pharaoh, who is believed to be divine, who once he ascended to the throne would be seen as the successor to the gods. Osiris cannot protect Pharaoh and his family from the judgment of God. Yahweh alone is the Lord of life and death, and he himself is a jealous God. And perhaps this is why, again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the first of the Ten Commandments begins with, you shall have no other gods before me. God says in Isaiah 48, my glory I will not give to another because he alone is worthy of praise and obedience. You know, in many ways, this last plague should be no surprise to the reader of the text because if you go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, the death of the firstborn ends up becoming an act of justice because do you remember what happened? Pharaoh tried to exterminate the Israelites in chapter 1 by killing every Hebrew baby boy, taking them from their mothers, and ordering they be tossed in the Nile. I mean, the book of Exodus begins with an attempted genocide. Yes, one man can order this, but it takes a nation to carry this out, right? So in one sense, the nation as a whole is guilty. Hence, the plague is a judgment on the whole nation of Israel. I mean, excuse me, Egypt. And we remember the people of God, the Israelites, cry out in distress. They cry out to God saying, do something. And here in Exodus eleven six, God says, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, this time from the Egyptians, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. According to God, it was Egypt's turn to cry out in distress. 
What God does to Pharaoh is a direct response to what Pharaoh has done to the Israelites. And all of this should be no surprise to the reader because you begin to understand God cares. He does see the suffering of his people. He hears their cries. He understands their affliction. And he's going to do something about it because he's a God of justice. But what is surprising about this final plague, and this is really surprising, is the judgment of God would also apply to every Israelite. Did you notice this? I mean, this destroyer, as God calls him in chapter 12, verse 23, claims a right to slay the children of Israel's as well. And this is new, you know? Did you notice in all the other plagues, the first nine, the Israelites were not afflicted? You know, when the flies were sent, which is the fourth plague, this is what God said, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarm of flies shall be there. Israel was spared. That's Exodus 8, 22. The fifth plague, where the livestock uh, stock are dying or have been killed, God says, nothing that belonged to the people of Israel shall die. Exodus 9, verse 4. Let me jump ahead. The seventh plague, hail and fire coming down from heaven. This is Exodus 9, 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. I mean, you get the idea the Israelites must have been shocked to learn they were in danger too from this 10th plague. I mean, they were not affected by the other plagues and got to watch it from a safe distance in Goshen where they lived. And perhaps they have been tempted to believe, perhaps we're just more righteous than the Egyptians, you know? We're the good guys. We are the victims here. And God is raining down his judgment on our oppressors. They are evil. Maybe that's what began, they began to think. But this last plague teaches something very different. The Israelites deserve judgment as much as their enemy, the Egyptians. In some sense, they were as guilty as the Egyptians. And this final plague in the Passover, in this, God teaches us about his justice, his holiness, about sin, and about salvation. This is why this takes up so much time in the Exodus narrative. You know, the Bible scholar uh, Alec Modier writes, when the wrath of God is applied in its essential reality, no one is safe. There were two nations in the land of Egypt, but they were both resistant to the word of God. And if God comes in judgment, none will escape. I mean, there is so much go more going on here in this story than the children of Israel are the good guys and the Egyptians are the enemies of God. It isn't as simple as there's an oppressor and a victim. Rather, it's telling us every single person is in danger as this final plague comes. Sure, the Israelites were guilty of certain things, okay? They were guilty of their own idolatry. We're going to see this again in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. They grumbled against Aaron and Moses 
when they actually went and confronted Pharaoh because they said, you guys are making our lives hard. They didn't believe God was going to deliver them. But more than that, this last plague, Todd, God's people were sinners. Not by only what they did, but also in their nature. And this may sound harsh to some of us. Maybe that sounds like, wait a second, are you saying we're, we're, we're sinners even when we, before we even sinned? But this is the teaching of the Bible. And you'll never understand the Bible. You're never going to understand yourself unless you begin to understand and start with, I am not innocent. We are not entitled to God's blessing and personal happiness. These are not things we go to God to demand. And when those things come, we receive them as God's goodness and his gift to us. But we don't show up to God saying we deserve these things. What we deserve is something else altogether. And what this passage teaches us is actually the judgment of God. This is, this is hard, you know? It's teaching us sin is more than the committing of awful crimes like genocide. It doesn't just apply to the Larry Nassers or the Harvey Weinsteins or the terrorist oppressors and the racists or historical figures who orchestrated atrocities like Hitler, okay? Because we like to think only people who do terrible things like that deserve judgment. And this is one of the reasons passages about God's judgment bother us so much because we like to presume ourselves as all innocent. And the idea of God, a God who judges, doesn't sit well with us today in America. But I think deep down we know we're not innocent. You know, uh, last year when I was traveling a little bit in the Middle East last fall during my sabbatical, one of the things that really struck me is, as I went from uh, historical site to historical site and religious site, I'm like, why are there so many ritual baths everywhere? You know, these are like these giant wells. And I was asking our, our tour guide, why are there so many things of this everywhere? And he said, people believed they needed to be cleansed. This is something inherent in who they are. As a community, they realize, look, in order to approach God, in order to recognize I live a life where I am not clean and I need cleansing, I can't generate it myself, was part of the understanding of who they were. But this is hard for us to swallow today in many ways. You know, a lawyer once came to Jesus and asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you're a lawyer. What's written in the law? Tell me your interpretation. You know, he asked him that question. And the guy answers, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He probably went to a good law school. He's pretty good. <laughs> Jesus said, you answered correctly. Do this and you will Think about that for a second. Okay, so if you're going to have eternal life, he said, go do that. 
go do what you just said and you will, you will live? I mean, can we claim to love God fully with absolute devotion? Devotion to his word and his commands flow from us because we love and trust him. Where every word he says, we will say, God, I will obey you. Even when they seem to go against our hopes and our dreams and our desires. This is an impossibility, you know? Oh, yes, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, too. We'll throw that in, too. I mean, just, I mean, just think about your last week. Imagine every text you wrote, every post you made on social media, every search you made online. You know, imagine you package all of that and just toss it out into the Internet and have it indexed for anyone to search. What would that reveal about you? I know what that would reveal about me. I live life putting myself first, not God or others. I mean, I, I cannot do this, you see? One way of thinking about sin is that we love so many things more than God, especially ourselves. Sin is placing something ahead of God, loving something, giving our attention, giving our worship to it. And that is something every single one of us is guilty of. You know, as St. Paul reflects on sin and righteousness, when you get to Romans chapter 3, he says this, and this is verse 9 in following. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And a few verses later, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a couple of chapters later, St. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, Death spread to all men because all sinned. I mean, the final plague teaches God is a holy God. He is a just God. God is teaching the children of Israel, you know what? You have a far greater problem than physical slavery in Egypt. You are a slave to sin. And like the Egyptians, you too deserve divine judgment, and you cannot escape this on your own. You need God's mercy, not only to liberate you from physical bondage, but from death itself. And what does God do? He provides a way out. This is chapter 12, right? And how does it happen? It's an odd thing. It's through a lamb. I mean, look at what it says in chapter 12. I mean, it, it's, all right, the Lord says to all the people of Israel, go get a lamb, a perfect one, spotless one, the best one you can uh, find and buy, you know, male, a year old, and bring it into your house, okay? You were to keep it in your house for four days. So for four days, you get to have this cute little lamb in the house, you know, adorable. Maybe the kids are going to get attached to it. And they're excited because it's like, Dad got us a lamb. You know, I got a pet. 
Maybe they felt connected to it. Maybe they're going to name it. But four days later, you know what happens? 14th day of the month. Dad is looking for the lamb. And he's got a knife. Okay? This is bloody stuff. And the kids are like, Dad, why? what are you doing, Dad? Like, please don't, don't, don't hurt this thing. And you know what the father has to explain? Look, the Lord has said, I am passing through all of Egypt tonight. And any house that does not have the lamb's blood over the doorframe, okay? The Lord will take the life of the firstborn in that house. Does that dad want to kill the lamb? But it's either the lamb or the firstborn in your house. I mean, this is a, this is a dreadful story. There's no, no two ways about it. Judgment is dreadful. These lambs have nothing to do with this. They're innocent. But after that night, they are no longer going to bleat. Okay? And later that night, in their homes, when they hear these terrible cries throughout the land of Egypt, when they hear these cries, the kind such as there has never been nor ever will be again, is how God describes it. They would know that would be us were not for the blood of this little lamb. Because what does the blood represent? It says someone has died in this house. The penalty has been executed. God's wrath has been turned away. The, the theological word for that is propitiation. Because blood on the door covered their sin. I mean, this is something that makes an impression on the people. And God said, you are to commemorate this event each year as a reminder that it was only through the blood of the Lamb that your lives were spared and were freed from slavery in Egypt. You know what this story teaches us? Contrary to our belief that we should presume ourselves innocent, the reality of judgment for all who are not under the blood of the Lamb is what God is trying to explain. It has to include blood as a way of turning away judgment. You know, when Steven Spielberg produced the animated film, The Prince of Egypt, which is about the life of Moses, the script at first had a mark on the door of the home. Just a little mark, you know, uh, as a way to identify who was in there. But the religious scholars who they hired to make sure it was in line with, you know, the theology, they read that and they were like, no, you can't put a mark there. It actually has to be blood. You know, and I'm assuming they're thinking, oh, if you put the blood, it's too bloody for kids and it's a cartoon. But they're saying, no, 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 you can't just put a mark there. It doesn't work. Because that's not what it was about. It wasn't their ethnicity that saved them. The story doesn't say it was the Israelites who stayed in the house with a mark saying they were the children of Israel. That's not why God passed over them. It was only the homes with the blood over the door. They were spared and passed over. 
This is why it's called a Passover. God in his mercy made a provision for human guilt through the blood of the lamb. You know, forgiveness costs something. I think we even instinctively understand that today. I mean, maybe some of us are sitting here and it's like, this thing is so violent. Yeah, these people were primitive thousands of years ago. But we know forgiveness is costly. And greater the debt, higher the cost. But why was blood used? Why did it have to be bloody? Because blood represented taking of a life, of payment, an atonement, an expiation. I mean, these people were not naive. They didn't think killing an animal somehow took away their guilt. They knew it was a symbol that this animal stood in their place, a life for a life. They knew they owed a debt that amounted to their own life, and they understood they could either pay their own debt, that's the justice they're trying to avoid here, or someone could pay that debt for them. And when someone does, that's called mercy. I mean, do you see what this is all pointing to? The child in an Israelite home is redeemed through a substitute. They put the mark of the blood of the lamb over the house, and your firstborn child is spared. In Exodus, your child is redeemed through a substitute, and this comes through the shedding of blood. And that's hard for modern people to swallow that this would be the case. You know, let me give you an example. You know, uh, there was a Franciscan university in Ohio that decided they wanted to buy some online ads on Facebook to promote some of its um, online theology program. But Facebook rejected one of these ads because it had a representation of the crucifixion. Isn't that interesting? Here's what the monitors at Facebook said to them. They said uh, they found the depiction of the cross quote, shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. The university responded with a blog post. They thought it was funny, and maybe this generates more publicity for them. They said, we agree with Facebook. <laughs> and here, let me read it to you. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking. Yes, God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross and left to die, all the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon his humanity. And they went on to say, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross, but his love. And it ends. He was God. He could have descended from the cross at any moment. No, it was love that kept him there. Love for you and for me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternal with him and his Father in heaven. 
You know, in the Gospels, the beloved child, God's only son, becomes the substitute. Except, except this time by the shedding of his own blood. You know, this is why we say he is the Lamb of God. If you were here for our Revelation sermon series, I mean, the Lamb of God is the one who sits on the throne. And this is why John the Baptist rightly says of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, do you understand Jesus is crucified during the season of Passover? Do you understand Christ is called our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. This final plague, the Passover, points ahead to the judgment that God once put on the firstborn, his only son. This is a fast-forwarding, and it's trying to tell us something, that in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, we begin to see that God doesn't give us his justice, but he gives us his son. He demonstrates his love to us by giving himself for us and asks us to love him because he first demonstrated his love for us. See? So much of our frustration or anger toward God, our doubts come from where? Thinking God owes us something. When we begin to understand what God actually owes us is his judgment. But he gives his son, his one and only son, for us. He's the means through which we find refuge under the blood of the lamb. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. You know, it's an economic term the Bible begins to use. Do we begin to understand we have been bought by God? This is the language of the scriptures, right? We saw this in Ephesians chapter 1, 7, which was our words of assurance after confession today. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, You are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish all of these allusions back to exodus chapter 12 maybe some of you are saying i mean are you saying my debt to god is really so great that it took the son of god dying to pay for it and you know what i want to say i think that's the question we all have to wrestle with do you really believe that to be the case? Because that is the claim of the scriptures. See, the whole book, book of Exodus points ahead to a far greater exodus from a slavery far deeper in a tyranny far greater than Pharaoh had for the people of Israel. We are enslaved to our sin. But God has provided us a way out through a lamb. And he says, I give him up so that I could have you. I mean, my, my friends, this is a hard story. 
you know, how do you, how do you respond to this? You know, what you notice in the book of Exodus is this, is the people of Israel could not be passive. They had to do one of two things. They had to either place their trust in God's provision by placing blood over the door, or they just sat there and waited to see if what God said would happen would happen. And in many ways today, that's the invitation we have today as we hear this story. You know, what will you do? Will you put your trust in the provision of safety that God has given through his son? Will you behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Would you say, Lord Jesus, will you, will you take on my sins? Will you die in my place? Will you be the one that I can worship and say, Lord, I accept that. See, that, that's the invitation of this story and the one we have this morning, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we ask this morning that um, by your spirit, you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, and give us ears to hear this invitation that you give us. That out of your love and out of your justice and holiness, you sent your one and only son to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Help us to receive that in faith. Help us to trust this today, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, because this is the good news we need to find life in you. And we ask these things in your son's precious name.